Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Charlotte Readers Podcast is also supported by the novel Deadly Declarations, available in print and audiobook wherever books are sold, and an ebook on Amazon Kindle. Written by Landis Wade and narrated by Bill A. Jones, Deadly Declarations is a light-hearted legal thriller that delves into a 250-year-old colonial mystery that Founding Father John Adams called one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. For reviews and information about Deadly Declarations, please visit LandisWade.com. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this 300th special episode of Charlotte Rears Podcast, we visit with C.J. Box, the number one New York Times bestselling author of 22 novels in the Joe Pickett series, about his latest novel in the series, Shadows Real. A day before the three Pickett girls come home for Thanksgiving, Joe is called out for a moose poaching incident that turns out to be something much more sinister. A local fishing guide has been brutally tortured and murdered. At the same time, Mary Beth opens an unmarked package at the library where she works and finds a photo album that belonged to an infamous Nazi official. Who left it there and why? Mary Beth learns that during World War II, several Army soldiers were in the group that fought to Hitler's Eagle's Nest retreat in the Alps, and one of them took the Fuhrer's personal photo album. Did another take this one and keep it all these years? When a close neighbor is murdered, Joe and Mary Beth face new questions. Who is after the book? And how will they solve its mystery before someone hurts them or their girls? Meanwhile, Nate Romanowski is on the hunt for the man who stole his falcons and attacked his wife. Using his network of fellow falconers, Nate tracks the man from one city to another. Even as he grasps the true threat uh, his quarry presents, Nate swoops in for the kill in a stunning final showdown. The New York Times says Joe Pickett, the conscientious game warden in these rugged novels, shows the tough and tender qualities that make him such a great guy to have on your side. The Publishers Weekly says, Box is the king of contemporary crime fiction set in the West. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. I also love how interviewing more than 300 authors on this podcast has helped my own writing journey. I've learned quite a bit from these talented guests. And if you'd like to learn more about my books and uh, what I've done with that uh, knowledge, you can uh, check out LandisWade.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. And uh, also, please follow me on BookBub. And for everything related to Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. Now, let's get to the episode. CJ, welcome to the 300th episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and congratulations on the latest novel in the Joe Pickett series. Thank you. Yeah, I just found out it debuted at number two on the New York Times list uh, for um, hardcover fiction and um, ebook 
card cover combination. That's awesome. Hey, by the way, um, about every hundredth episode or so, I have a Wyoming uh, guest on. I had uh, from a hundredth episode, I had Craig Johnson on the show, and uh, you know, author of the Longmire series. And for those who are listening, uh, you know, you're another Wyoming author. You, do you and Craig Johnson ever run into each other? Oh, sure. It uh, yeah. there's only six hundred thousand people in the whole state, <laughs> so we run into everybody. Yeah. Um, well, look, let's start off. Uh, you've written 22 novels with the Joe, Joe Pickett as your protagonist. And uh, for any of our listeners who aren't yet familiar with Joe Pickett, we're here on the East Coast. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the character and sort of how he's evolved from book one, which was open season, to the current book, Shadow Reels. Sure. Joe Pickett is a Wyoming game warden, which means he's a state employee. And um, game wardens in Wyoming are, there's only 50 of them. Um, but they're kind of uh, have an outsized uh, influence and reputation because they're scattered throughout the state. Um, they operate as individuals and as loners. They rarely have backup um, in the field. They're heavily armed. Um, they generally live in state-owned homes, and uh, their districts can be as, as large as 5,000 square miles. So because of the, the distance and um, isolation, uh, they're often involved in cases and situations that go way outside of uh, simple gate enforcing game and fish regulations. So Joe Pickett was um, brought into the world 22 years ago now um, as a 34-year-old young game warden with his wife and his young daughters. And through 22 books and 22 years, he's gotten older. His Family has grown up. The girls have moved away, um, but he's still at it and um, has, over the years, has faced um, a lot of different situations, uh, certainly, that um, across all sorts of different walks of life and um, involving things like uh, environmental terrorists and uh, resource-based issues. And um, this one... uh, Shadows Real is more really about his wife, um, who's the director of the the Twelve Sleep County Library. <laughs> yeah, great name for great name for a library, Twelve Sleep. Um, so, you know, after reading your books, it's clear that being a game warden, um, you know, is a lot more dangerous uh, than what a typical city driller, you know, might think of. I know you've done ride-alongs. Uh, I've read about that with game wardens. How, how have those experiences? helped you bring uh, realism to this character, Joe Pickett? Yeah, I do. Um, I do ride-alongs, and I have several game wardens who are kind of unofficial consultants <laughs> um, who I run passages of the books by, and uh, and I try to stay really close to... Of course, you know, the plots are... Um, you know, you have to <laughs> yeah. suspend disbelief to think that a exactly. game warden would go through all this. But I tried to keep the rest of his duties and responsibilities as accurate as I can. And um, game wardens often uh, contact me and tell me interesting stories. And I've incorporated mm. several of those into the books. That's great. Now, on the personal front, you live in the setting you write about. And I know that you love fly fishing as as do I, although mine is primarily in the mountains of North Carolina, smaller trout than what you're catching out there. But could you talk about your love of Montana and Wyoming? And uh, and maybe while you're at it, tell me the best rivers I should go fly fishing at. Ah, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I grew up here. I was born here and um, still my home. We now have a, a, a ranch in uh, southern Wyoming and um, where it's snowing today, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
But and, um, and, and just for the listeners, we're recording this in mid-March for release in June for our 300th episode. So even though it's not June, really, it's still mid-March and it's snowing, right? That's right. And on the Interstate 80, our main highway is closed today because of the snow. But um, yeah, I, I do love the area. I uh, uh, worked for 24 years in tourism promotion to Wyoming, Montana, South Dakota, Idaho. So I know the region and the state extremely well. I've been just about everywhere. Um, I've done all the things that happen in the book, like whitewater rafting and skiing and uh, multi-day wilderness pack trips, that kind of thing. Um, it's a great tableau to, to write about um, because there are so many, strangely enough, so many cutting edge issues um, in, this, in this area when it comes to um, endangered species, environmentalism, energy production. And I try to you know, always include those real, um, r- real issues and controversies in the books. Yeah, you still didn't give me the secret fly fishing spot, the you know. So. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, in Wyoming, we live near the Upper North Platte River, which okay. is exceptionally good, um, and that's where I spend forty, fifty days uh, during the summer and fall uh, fishing every day. It's That's spectacular. Um, it's wild river, wild trout, no dams. Um, it all depends on how much snow we get, how, how big the river is going to be. But um, I'm, I'm, I, I, it's, it's a wonderful river. Yeah, and, and I learned, and I would commend this to our listeners, I, I was scrolling around on the internet and found a March 2014 um, Wyoming Public Radio StoryCorps interview between you and your daughter, Molly about how you taught your daughters fly fishing. And uh, it reminded me, CJ, of a story. It was something she said reminded me of a story of my own daughter. She said, women sometimes have a better finesse than men in fly fishing. And I, it, the story is that my daughter and I were fishing with a guide and she was very patient. I wasn't, of course, you know, I lost my fish and she landed a huge brown trout because she was patient. Women can be more patient, but I, I guess my question is this, clearly you're close to your daughters. Um, and that came through in that interview when you talked about fishing with them. And I was just wondering, is, uh, since the character Joe Pickett has two several daughters and a wife uh, um, who's smarter than him, is this uh, you sort of writing what you know here a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think every writer does to some degree. I mean, I had, I'm older than Joe Pickett, but I, I mm-hmm. had three daughters. And um you know, I, I, I'm a close observer of them and <laughs> uh, have incorporated some things that happened in real life into Joe Pickett's home life. Um, one thing in particular, was, uh, you know, early on, especially every night, um, it, it says in the book that he felt like he was returning to the house of feelings. And I certainly know what that is like. <laughs> yeah. and, and so have you worked in the story about how, how one of the girls uh, lost their flip flop while they were out fishing? Yes. Yes. And, and um, some of the his older daughter, especially Sheridan, um, earlier in the books, uh, goes out with him, goes right and does ride alongs. And, um, yeah, has has many comments about how out of touch he is. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, I love that story because you actually put sugar on the fish you were cooking that they wanted to eat instead of flour. And it uh, had sort of a lasting impression on your daughter's. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a great family tale, um, and uh, it comes up every time the girls are together. <laughs> well, the Joe Pickett series—it's an amazing run, and you've won many awards as an author. 
you know, on the right in front, you're New York Times bestselling author. You've won, uh, you know, prestigious awards like the Edgar Award. But you once said that a certificate of appreciation that you got from the Wyoming Game Warden Association is one of the most special awards. Talk about that. Why is that? Sure. That was uh, because um, mainly because, you know, the game wardens tend to really like the books. I think one reason is because nobody writes about game wardens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a few people do now. I, yeah. But the other thing is um, they knew that I, you know, tried hard, hard to um, make it as authentic as possible. So, yeah, they gave me a, a, a commendation um, a, a few years ago, the Wyoming Game Warden Association, and that hangs proudly on my wall. That's great. So I'm just curious. So we'll talk a little bit more about writing before we finish up today. But uh, with 22 books, uh, what motivates you to keep at it? Because even though you make writing look easy, everyone knows that writing, you know, is hard work. It is. Um, What what keeps me going are the, uh, you know, the issues and the controversies and the themes that I'm personally interested in. I like the research part before I ever begin. Um, and I like to interview people who are experts in their field, um, maybe on both sides of an issue so that I can portray it accurately. And the, the prep work for me is the, one of the most fun parts of writing a book. Um, I never think of, of the books as whodunits or procedurals. I always think of it as um, how do I pull a reader in a page-turning way through these issues or subjects or controversies. And that's how that's been my methodology since the very first book and continues to be. That's great. And before we get into uh, Shadow Reels, I just want to talk uh, another medium for a moment, uh, TV, because I was doing a little research. Uh, tell us what's happening with the Joe Pickett television series. Um, I, I know you had a season. Uh, is it one season? Is another season coming or what? Sure. Um, actually, right now there are two television series based on my right. books, which is right. kind of amazing to think about. Uh, right. Big Sky on ABC, which is based on my Cassie Duell novels, and Joe Pickett, which uh, debuted in December on as a Spectrum original on the Charter Spectrum cable service. Um, Joe Pickett quickly went to number one on their service, and will be uh, they moved it. It'll be shown on Paramount Plus in May. And uh, my wife and I love it. We think it couldn't be any better. The casting's great. They're sticking very, very closely to the book, which is primarily the very first novel open season. And it's been renewed for a second season already. So um, they'll start shooting that soon. Yeah, I would commend uh, listeners to go to your website. Uh, I think that's what cjbox.netcom. What is it? Dot net. cjbox.net. Okay, that's the Western thing there, cjbox.net. So go there and listen or watch the trailer because the trailer for the Joe Pickett television series is really good. I mean, it's going to pull you in right away. And I, I, I was trying to figure out how did I miss this? It's probably because we've got so many streaming channels. I can't, I can't keep up, but I'm going to go watch the show now. And then Big Sky as well, that's based on your Hoyt uh, dual novels, right? Is that- that's right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, okay, and and just a question about that: Are you active in these productions? Do you do you provide, you know, support? Do you go on the set ever? What's what's that like? Well, I I, I have visited both sets, um, but that's that's the the end of that, um, <laughs> the extent of that, I should say. <laughs> I have had really good long conversations with the producers and writers of both shows before they begin the season, um, to just kind of talk about the the overall narrative and. Um, be of any help 
or I can be, but I don't get involved in the day-to-day um, shooting or writing of the show or casting for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer it that way. I think they prefer it that way. And um, I look at it as, a, you know, I'm executive producer, I do two things. I provide the source material and I cash the checks. And that's about it. <laughs> that's well, that's not bad. Uh, do, do the actors ever uh, pick your brain about uh, you know uh, sort of the nuances of the characters? Yes, yes. Um, on the Joe Pickett set, I was really pleasantly surprised to find out that almost all of the actors were reading the entire series of books. Um, they 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 mainly started reading them for their characters, but um, luckily got wrapped up into the whole series and. Um, the the actor who plays Joe Pickett, I think, had read 11 or 12 of them at the point when I met him. Hopefully he's even further now. That's that's really great. I mean, it must be really uh, surreal to sit there on your couch and watch the the show on TV. It is. It is. Yeah. It's kind of unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right. OK, time to talk about uh, Shatter Reels uh, without giving too much away. Let's uh, it's a day before the three picker girls come home. I mentioned for Thanksgiving, Joe's out. Uh, for a moose poaching incident uh, that turned sinister. Local fishing guy has been brutally tortured and murdered. Um, And then the wife, Mary Beth, who has a bigger role, as you say, in this book, she finds this package at the library uh, where she works, uh, and it's uh, a photo album belonging to an infamous Nazi official. And I'm just curious, maybe you could talk about the what if for this story and how you learned about this Nazi photo album that you say in your acknowledgments is real. Yes, it is. Um, sometimes, you know, people always ask where do you get your ideas, and sometimes they're just things that interest me. But sometimes they come to me um, in a in an odd way. And um, a few years ago, I was at a, doing a, a book signing event at a library in Wyoming, and the the librarian, the head of the the director, a man, um, told me he had something he needed to show me. And uh, it turned out to be this 1937 uh, red leather bound photo album uh, that belonged to uh, the number five Nazi official named Julius Stryker. And um, Stryker was a horrible man, Um, the worst anti-Semite maybe in the German government, really, really a a brutal guy. And um, that got me, you know, thinking about how how did this album wind up in Wyoming and at this library? Who brought it there? And he, the librarian and I both did some research on it and came to the same conclusion. And that is that there were two GIs that were in the Band of Brothers um, that landed at Normandy and went all the way to Berksgarden, Hitler's Eagle's Nest. One of those two GIs um, came back to Casper, Wyoming with Hitler's photo album. And our speculation is that the second one came back with Julius Strikers, and that's what was sitting in front of us. So I incorporated that into the book just because it's such an unbelievable story. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great uh, prompt uh, for a, a novelist to have something fall into your lap like that. I'm sure your imagination just spun out of control when you were thinking about, okay, what am I going to do with this? Sure, sure. It's that, it's that maxim, you know, if you're a mystery writer or a crime writer, you know, um, if you walk around with a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. You know, it, so every story you hear, um, I hear, I try to, I, if it's intriguing, I try to wonder out how can I work that into a future book. Yeah. All right. Well, Shoulders Podcast, uh, it's where authors give voice to the written words. You've got a little scene you're going to read that's uh, early in the novel. Um, anything you want to do to set this up uh, before you read it? Sure. It starts out, um, Joe Pickett gets a call from a local rancher 
that um, the rancher was out on the edges of his ranch, kind of swampy area, thought he saw a dead moose across a swamp. And because uh, moose season is over, Joe thinks it's a poaching incident. So he drives out there. Uh, the rancher's named Vern Trumley. And um, Joe borrows the rancher's ATV to go out to find this moose. This is where it begins. Just look for the birds, Trumley had said. Joe understood. Predatory birds like ravens and crows were always the first on the scene of a carcass. Birds of prey, like eagles and falcons, would show up next. Larger predators would follow their lead, and scuttling armies of insects would later mop up. Before he even saw the birds gathering near a stand of thick willows up ahead, he caught a whiff of what smelled like burned pork. Daisy noticed it too. Daisy's his dog. And out of the corner of his eye, he saw her stop and raise her snout in the air. Joe rounded a knot of brush and saw a high grass swamp between him and the birds. It was as far as Trumley had traveled that morning. The ATV track stopped short before attempting to cross the bog. As Trumley had described, a dark and heavy form was on the ground beneath an overhang of thick brush on the, on the other side of the swamp beyond the clearing. Parts of it appeared to be smoldering, and wisps of steam or smoke rose from the upper part. Despite that, ravens covered it and, and fought off newcomers to the scene. Several let out shrill cries. He stopped the ATV at the swamp edge and dug his binoculars out of his gear bag. Although the idling engine made his field of vision tremble, he zoomed in on the form and sharpened the focus. The first thing he noticed made him draw a sharp intake of breath. The body was black and charred and curled up beneath an overhang. Two rows of white teeth, human teeth, appeared bright and almost electrified from the lower part of the skull. The lips were either burned away or eaten off by ravens. An arm stuck out from the body as if, as if reaching out for help that didn't come. Three of the five fingers had already been cleaned of flesh to the bone by the ravens. A fire-blackened silver wristwatch hung loosely from the carpal joints. Joe felt his stomach clench and his body go cold. It wasn't a moose that Lorm Trumley had found on the edge of his property. <laughs> I love it. It wasn't a moose that, that he found on the edge of his property. Uh, body in chapter one, right? Get things started. That's out. right. Yeah. <laughs> Got to do that. Um, okay. Well, one of the topics here that comes up in the book is uh, falconry. Uh, I know you've dealt with that a little bit before, but uh, I'm curious, is this something that you're interested in? Have you ever uh, experienced with it? Uh, talk about this uh, thing called falconry. Sure. Falconry has been a part of the novels um, since the third book um, because Joe's friend, um, an outlaw falconer with a special forces background is, is uh, Nate Romanowski and Nate is a master falconer and um, falconry for real is a, it's a real thing. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I used to, I was never a falconer, but one of my best friends in high school, a year ahead of me in school, big guy, big blonde guy, um, went off to the Air Force Academy and then into Special Forces himself, was a falconer. And I used to go falconry hunting with him. I met other falconers through him. Um, falconers are a very special breed of, of people. Um, they kind of devote their lives to their birds. Um, they hunt with them. They have a different worldview than most people do um, because, because of this um, kind of obsession with, with falconry. 
And I've always been fascinated by it and um, worked it into the books. And it kind of, it, it shapes Nate Romanowski and the life he leads and his, his outlook in the world. And in this book, um, the other storyline besides the Nazi photo album is that in the previous book, another falconer, a really bad guy, um, threatened Nate's family and stole all of his birds. And Nate is on the hunt for him. Yeah. So it's kind of part mystery on the one side related to the Nazi photo album, but then it's more of a thriller as it relates to what uh, Nate's about to get himself into chasing the guy who ruined his business and stole all his falcons. Yeah, there's kind of two, two books in one that all kind of <laughs> all kind of comes together in the end um, yeah. where both storylines are resolved. So one of the themes you deal with is uh, Antifa in the book. And, uh, you know, you shared information uh, that surprised me about the size or rather the lack of size of that movement. I was just wondering, are these things you learned about through the process of research in doing this book? It, they uh, were. Yeah, I, I actually read the Antifa handbook. Uh, written oh. by a guy named Mark Bray, and and then a lot of research about about the the movement. Um, it's not you can't really call it. It's I mean it's 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 a loose group of cells, nothing um, organized from the top, but they do exist certainly, um, and especially in the Pacific Northwest, even in Denver. And um, in order to research the book, uh, I I went to those places: Denver, Seattle, Portland. Um, and right after, in the aftermath of, of downtown um, unrest and riots, I was in Portland during the middle of a, of a riot. Um, I was in a downtown hotel and watched, uh, you know, demonstrators smash out all the windows of the, of the hotel I was in on the ground floor. And um, they did it for hours and uh, never saw a cop show up. Um, and the next morning, it was pretty devastating. Yeah, I didn't quite understand that. I mean, I haven't studied it too much. My son lives in Denver. I'm thinking uh, you had a scene set in Denver that involved the Antifa group, and then you took him out to to Portland as well. But uh, I didn't quite. I don't quite understand how you know what you're relaying in the book here that uh, law enforcement is just sort of taking a pass about you know what's going on in those situations. What did you learn about that? I did learn that um, uh, in Portland, at least. Um, for a while, uh, the the cops were told to just stand down, um, not to react. And um, the day after the riot that I saw was the first time the mayor of Portland, you know, took the microphone and said, we must unmask these people. Um, mm. And uh, my reaction was, dude, you've got an outdoor mask mandate going on. <laughs> so which is it? <laughs> Interesting. Well, that's a good segue into what I was going to ask you next, because you did a public service announcement for Wyoming Public Radio during the pandemic. And uh, I thought it was interesting. You said, I'm a professional at social distancing. I do it every day. And I was just curious right. about that. <laughs> I just Does that pretty much sum up the life of a writer? Well, it does for me. I mean, I live in a very <laughs> remote location. Um, we, you know, it, it was it was odd to me to to see what was going on in the rest of the country. Um, we didn't, no one wore masks here. Schools never closed. Um, life went on uh, during, it, everybody got COVID, including me, but it just didn't affect day-to-day -day life that much. So even, even this last week when I was, you know, on the, flying around the country on a book tour, I was kind of still shocked to see how, um, how 
people were acting and in masks and um, still acting like it was March of 2020. But um, for me, you know, I work by myself in an office above the <laughs> barn every day and don't see anybody. That's that's interesting. Uh, well, look, I, I know that we've got listeners that uh, some are writers themselves are, uh, and sometimes readers are interested in the process. Just a few questions there. Um, how has your writing process evolved from the first Joe Pickett book to the 22nd Joe Pickett book? You know, it hasn't, the methodology is still kind of the same. Um, that is, I, I start with the, the, the themes and the issues. I research the heck out of them. And then I begin the book. And um, the way I do it is I just do a kind of a bullet point outline that goes from the first chapter all the way to the end. And then I begin writing on top of, of that outline and um, try to get at minimum a thousand words a day when I'm writing. Sometimes it's three, four, five times that, depending. Um, it usually takes from seven to nine months to write a book, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. But that's about average. Um, I work in the mornings um, and so I start by editing what I wrote the day before and then I push forward. Um, the outline really helps me because there's certain days where you just don't feel like writing. But I, since I know where the book is going, I can at least do push it forward and then backfill that pass, those passages later. And it, it, it works for me. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. I've got a lot of author friends who start with the characters, they say, and see where those characters will take them. But I generally, um, you know, I, I've got I've got an outline. Doesn't mm. mean I might not change the ending when I get there or things might happen throughout the, the manuscript that who knows where that comes from. <laughs> you never know. Mm. But and I, I welcome that. But generally, I've got a I've got a pathway and I stick to it. I find it interesting you edit. Uh, the next day, which you did the day before, has that helped you when it comes time to the end when you're going to go back and revise, uh, having done that along the way? Yes, it does. Um, and I'm always going back and messing with the first page, the first line, the first chapter right. uh, to set it, you know, set it up right. I, I keep tinkering with that throughout the whole book. Um, and then, uh, then, yeah, when it's all complete, then I, do a, a, I think a very rigorous uh, copy editing job, and then it goes to my wife, who's my best editor, my first reader, and then to my three daughters, and then to my agent, and then to the publisher. That, that's interesting. Um, so over the years, I mean, there you know, rejection is a, uh, it's something that many authors deal with, uh, new writers deal with. Uh, any interesting or funny stories from your past about uh, rejection or your struggle in your early years? Sure. I didn't, I didn't get rejected that much. Um, mainly Gosh, because I, I waited, I waited until, I mean, I'd written three or four manuscripts, but I, right. uh, I didn't really feel confident about one until it was the one that later became open season. Hmm. And, um, my, mainly cause my wife said after reading it, Hey, this is, this is as good as some of the stuff I'm reading. So I think you should okay. try that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I got a, this was pre-internet, pre-email, pre-everything. I had to physically send the manuscript off. Um, I, I got a name of an agent in New York who expressed interest, sent it to him, waited a year. Um, nothing happened. I, I'd call him and I'd say, what's going on? And he'd say how hard it was to place because it was unusual. And 
um, took place in a state nobody would ever heard of kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know, basically said, quit bothering me. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know if something happens. So a year, two years went by and um, nothing was happening. And I, I happened to go to a, a book conference in Denver where there were agents and editors you could pitch your book to. And I pitched it to one, uh, an, an agent, and he liked the idea. And he asked me who my you know, my agent was, I told him the name of the guy in New York and he just looked at me and he said, you don't know that he's dead, do you? And he, <laughs> he'd been dead like six months at that point. So uh, that yeah, story yeah. got around in the conference, of course, you know, the <laughs> guy from Wyoming with the dead agent and um, an editor from Putnam heard the story, expressed interest and bought the book. That's amazing. Uh, have you worked a dead editor in, in, in any of your books yet? You, you need to somewhere along the way. I have not. No, it, that's one of those things that is too improbable for anybody to believe. <laughs> that's right. It's got to ring true, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, so I asked this question of authors and, and, you know, have written a few books. You've written many, many books. And uh, it, it's this, if you could tell your younger writing self something, CJ, based on everything you've learned since that might've helped that younger writer, uh, you know, getting, getting started. Uh, can you boil it down to anything? I'd say, uh, you know, be patient, but at the same time, be confident in your own voice. Don't try to, don't try to structure your book by what's um, currently popular in the market or add elements to it that you think will have appeal simply to add them rather than be authentic. Um, and learn the business, get some, buy some books and learn the business of publishing. Um, you know, way too many writers don't have any, any clue about business. Um, they, you know, they, they get a contract, they quit their job. Um, <laughs> they think they can, you know, move to Hawaii and write books. And within a couple of years, most of them are back doing the jobs that they, they quit. Right. Yeah. Get it. Get advice. Don't quit your day job for, for, for a while because That's you're right. still, even you, as many awards as you've gotten in all the books, you're still promoting your books, right? And you're still a part of that process. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I like it. I, I especially like um, meeting readers at, uh, you know, on a book tour or whatever. It's, it's good to get feedback um, face to face. And I appreciate that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let me just tell listeners, uh, we're going to jump over and do our 10 minutes of reading and writing segment on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. You can jump over there, listeners, and uh, hear a little bit about what uh, CJ is reading at the moment, what he likes to read, and any suggestions he has in that regard. Uh, so stick with us there. Um, CJ, I, I assume that you're in the middle of, uh, or maybe you started thinking about uh, the next in the series. Do you start pretty much at the time that this one's being released or even earlier? Sure. I've got a, a Cassie Duell book coming out okay. this September um, that I completed not long ago. And I am have already started the next Joe Pickett book. I'm about 100 pages in. Uh, yeah. um, you know, I, I think it's going well and I'm on track. <laughs> and my goal is always to get the book done well ahead of the deadline so that I can do guilt-free fly fishing and golfing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, we've got a lot in common except the fact that you've got 22 New York Times bestselling books. Uh, I love, <laughs> I love, I love golfing and fly fishing too. Uh, uh, listeners, I'm not know, very good at it. I picked it <laughs> yeah. up after 40 years of not golfing. Yeah. So well, you don't have to be good at it. it to have, you don't have to be good at it to have a good time. Um, 
Hey, listeners, we've been visiting with C.J. Box, New York Times bestselling author of 22 novels in the Joe Pickett series and many other novels as well. Uh, C.J., it's been wonderful having you as our premier guest on our 300th episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Sure. Thank you. It's been fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.